Do you turn in your Bibles if you to the Gospel of Mark? You can find the Gospel of Mark starting on page 812. This morning we begin a new sermon series on this gospel. The last time we were in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was 2011 when we finished the gospel of John. And uh, I think you'd agree with me, that's a little too long. Listen to uh, the 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle, who wrote this, it would be well if professing Christians in modern days study the four gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable, but I think it should be good if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ Himself, to see the King's own face, and to behold His beauty. You're here on a Sunday morning, and you could be doing a whole lot of other things, but maybe you're curious enough interested enough about Christianity to get up early and take the time to be among us. We at Grace Redeemer Church want to point you to Jesus. Or maybe you are already a follower of Christ, and you have placed your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, and you've come here this morning to worship Him. Mark is going to show us something more of the glory of this Son of Man who is the servant king to enrich, to deepen our worship all the more. Let's see and savor this Jesus. And by the way, my apologies to Karen and Mr. Chung and our children because I'm not going to go in that direction this morning. After press time, I uh, veered off, and so uh, we're going to use this morning as more of an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. And well, we'll look at, um, but I will read a little bit of uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the, in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You who created, You who came among us, You who fill us with the power and presence of Christ even now, speak a fresh word as we begin this journey through the gospel of Mark. Let it, 2,000 years later, bear continued fruit as you, Holy Spirit, change us into the likeness of the one who did intrude into our world 
to save us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Three things as background this morning as we begin this long journey. No promises. We land the plane. We'll just enjoy the ride. First, author, Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. By the way, I have to come clean. I've been living a lie over the last uh, few months. Um, those of you know what this means, um, we all get old. Um, I, I have to tell you, um, I never understood why the preacher kept pulling off his glasses as if he was vain. Like, just leave them on, dude. But, but now I'm in my late 40s and I understand that this requires something different than this. So, um, laugh with me or feel my pain, but um, I've been bringing these up and uh, I barely got through Mark 1 through 8. And so, uh, I better keep these out. Um, reading glasses, if case some of you 20-somethings have no idea why these things uh, exist. Mark is the f- shortest of the four Gospels. It is action-packed and fast-paced. It describes less of Jesus' teaching and more of Jesus' doing. And Mark uses what's called in grammar the historical present tense. He uses it 150 times. It's not as complicated as it sounds because we come across it all the time in literature, and we sometimes use this um, in describing something in the past as if it's happening now. Uh, Let me give you a a fictional example um, of why we use the historical present to add intensity and urgency to what we're describing, okay? Uh, Somebody might say, you didn't see the debate last night? I I can summarize it in a matter of four sentences. So right away, Biden makes the snide remark, and Bernie's eyebrows are going crazy. And uh, Pete's got this frozen smirk on his face, and Klobuchar is about to have a heart attack. Lester is just asking the same question as if all of this isn't happening in front of him, and nobody's listening to anybody. It is chaos right? That, that doesn't sound that strange, does it? All present tense verbs fan describing something that happened in the past in order to add intensity and urgency. We sports fans do this all the time when we're talking about the big game and the dramatic end of the game using present tense form to add this sense of immediacy. It's also called the dramatic present in grammar. It creates a sense of immediacy, and Mark is all about immediacy, He uses the Greek word translated immediately 42 times compared to 12 times in the rest of the entire New Testament, 42 times. Everything's a newsflash in Mark. Everything's a a vivid snapshot, and then Mark's on to the next scene. The vast majority of his paragraphs start with the word and. He's like a breathless little kid who can't tell you every single detail about the birthday party he just came home from fast enough, and we did this, and we had cake, and we played games, and, and, and because he can't get it all out fast enough. That's the gospel of Mark. Who is Mark? A guy named Papias helps us understand. Papias was a first century Greek bishop who knew the apostle Paul, uh, apostle John personally, And in Papias' writings, he mentions that Mark had written down what the Apostle Peter had shared with him. So, the Gospel of Mark is essentially the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter as he followed Jesus around for three and a half years during his 
uh, public ministry at the end of his life. In the first letter that Peter wrote at the end of the New Testament, Peter refers to Mark as my son. There's this term of endearment that makes sense for a guy who spent so much time with him. And um, in the book of Acts, by the way, the man referred to as John Mark is this very same man. That's who wrote this gospel, this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Secondly, uh, genre news. It's not a technical genre, but if we're talking about what kind of writing this falls into, the beginning at least fits into this category. In verse 1, good news is sometimes also translated gospel, but it was a common term in the first century. It did not have special spiritual or religious significance. It just described an announcement that people would have received as a good message, and good messages always get people's attention. Uh, kids in school, you might be sitting in homeroom first thing in the morning, especially middle schoolers and high schoolers, listening to the principal drone on and on, reminding you about the policy against smartphone usage in class, and you tune out. You dig in your backpack for something, you chat with your friend, um, you just have to endure this. But then good news comes. The principal congratulates the soccer team for their win yesterday, which advances them into the state tournament, and good news, everyone in school gets to leave two hours early in order to get to the game. And all of a sudden, you are hyper-focused because you love homeroom announcement time. You're always paying attention, and what has changed? Not the announcer, not the medium of the creaky old PA system, but the fact that the message has become good news. Get your attention. Beginning is the first word of the gospel, literally. Beginning, R.K. It's Mark's way of reminding us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Susan read this for us Wednesday morning, 7.30. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's gospel starts with the same word, intentionally pointing back to creation. In the beginning was the word. It's a reference to Jesus. It's a statement that God the Son, the word, has always been, was preexistent. And so when Mark also starts with the word beginning, he is announcing like John that God is about to bring recreation. Nothing will ever be the same. Juneteenth, some of you know what that is, is a mashup of June 19th. It's a holiday that celebrates the abolition of slavery in Texas. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, effective January 1st of 1863, but it wasn't for two more years in April until General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox. And later that month, April 1865, until that news of the surrender reached Texas, that far-flung frontier state, far from the central battleground. And it wasn't until June 18th, 1865, that Union General Granger arrived in Galveston with 2,000 troops, and the next day, 19th, made the announcement that really mattered. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, 
All slaves are free. That announcement of gospel, good news, meant that a new reality was now possible for all who had been slaves in Texas. Mark announces that God's bringing a new beginning desperately needed because humanity was in slavery to sin. So God the Son intruded into the world, there's our word, kids, but not like General Granger arriving in Galveston. We could imagine Union soldiers arriving like bosses in Texas, in the port city, intimidating the country folk out on the frontier who weren't really centrally involved in the war. You can imagine these 2,000 federal officers looking cleaned up, representing the Union, um, perhaps in uniforms, who knows by then if they even had those anymore, but marching information, acting like the authority, and no one could miss the man in charge, the general on a regal horse at the front of the formation in order to establish authority and perhaps intimidate. So very different than the way the Son of God, the Messiah, arrived, came to us, showed up on the scene of history in the first century. Take another look at our series graphic. It resembles street graffiti uh, to depict the fact that Mark is not out to construct this cleaned-up historical narrative. He's putting scenes up, like on subway cars, you know, one thing here, one thing here, one thing there. He's, he's given us these vivid snapshots, moving from one to the other. And the question, who is this son of man, is what Mark, the gospel writer, is out to answer. First eight chapters of the gospel of Mark reveal Jesus' identity as the king. And the last eight chapters will show us the purpose of his coming, to go to the cross It's disproportionate, the amount of time Mark and all the gospel writers spend on the very last week of Jesus' life, because the the stuff that comes at the beginning is all leading up to that intended climax. All of this in great contrast with an arriving general in Galveston who brings good news. This leader, we're going to focus on Jesus. This leader did not come to be served, but to serve. That's probably the theme verse, Mark chapter 10 of the entire gospel. And yet, he is the real king. He's the lowliest piece on the chessboard, the pawn, as well as the ruler of it all and the point of it all, the king. Throughout Mark's gospel, so often the way this servant king acts and speaks just doesn't fit our expectations, which shows us all the more that he is alone deserving of all our worship. Lastly, purpose. It's Mark's purpose. It's to reveal Jesus. In the middle of the first century, Emperor Nero ruled Rome, and he started to come unglued towards the end of the 50s. In A.D. 64, a devastating fire burned through Rome for seven full days and destroyed 80% of Rome, and many of the people blamed him. So Nero, not being a dummy, decided to deflect blame and um, spread whispers and lies 
that those responsible were the followers of this Jesus of Nazareth. What followed was intense persecution, Christians being fed to wild dogs to attack, Christians being burned as human torches to light up the night sky, Christians being fed to the lions in the Colosseum for sport. This is exactly the time period when the Gospel of Mark was written. And historians tell us that Mark was in Rome writing this account of Jesus' life and ministry. What would the Gospel of Mark have had to say to pagan worshipers in Rome or those merely skeptical that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was long gone, decades previously, had actually risen from the dead? Because it wasn't just the Christians, right, as the audience of the Gospel of Mark. It wasn't just the Christians suffering in Rome. If, if 80% of New York City was destroyed, it, it would affect everybody. Everyone pays the price, right? The economy tanks immediately. The injured and the sick can't get the help they urgently need. Looters and criminals would take advantage of the chaos, and disease finds an easy foothold. Everyone would have been paying a price. What did Mark's gospel have to say to those who were not believers? The same message it holds today for those of you who don't believe, who aren't sure about Christianity. Uh, you might all remember the, the movie The Truman Show, uh, starring Jim Carrey. One day, Truman discovers that his entire life is scripted, and he's the star of a TV show. His world is an elaborate TV set, and this TV show is broadcast around the world 24-7 for everybody to peek in on what Truman's doing. Every other resident of his town was an actor playing a particular role and everything was orchestrated. And when he discovers what's going on, he tries to escape, and the producer speaks out of the sky. Uh, this producer who pretty much controlled everything that happened in Truman's life tries to convince him to stay, saying, quote, there is no more truth out there in the real world, and if you stay in this artificial world, you have nothing to fear. That's the illusion, the lie that anyone can manage life enough to eliminate fear. No, 80% of New York is not burning, but we're suddenly this close to a recession. You either greatly fear another four years of Trump or greatly fear Bernie's revolution. Maybe your fears come from not measuring up to the standards of beauty that you come across on Instagram or on the cover of Cosmo. Maybe your fears come from not measuring up to the standards of others' vacations on Facebook or the standards of your company that might lay you off or, or the standards of your dream college, which might mean that you're going to your safety school. Reasons for fear and anxiety exist in the airbrushed world of fiction well, and social media and politics. I had to add that as well as in the real world of ordinary people living ordinary lives. There's all kinds of reasons to fear and have anxiety on an hourly basis. What does Mark have to say to you? First, that the Bible contains the truest and most dramatic of all stories, and that 
this announcement, the beginning of this announcement of good news is going to put all the focus of this truest and most dramatic of all stories on the central character, the hero, the climactic chapter, Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. What does Mark have to say to you? That the author of life and the author of this grandest of all stories has himself personally stepped into his story. He's not the producer playing with the lives of his people for the entertainment of others. God himself has come among us in the person of Jesus, not to help us escape this reality, but to make all things new, to renew his world and his people through this message that through faith in Jesus, perfect life, and substitute death in your place, there can be peace, freedom, forgiveness, Arise, shake off your guilty fears. That's a, a message of emancipation. Jesus' perfect love drives out fear. It's a phrase from 1 John chapter 4, and it's offered to you if you'll embrace it by faith. The world has come a long way since the first century, but don't be deluded by the promise of progress in humanity. Soren Kierkegaard told a parable about a rich man riding in a lighted carriage with his peasant driver outside behind the horse in official old in the dark. Another author adds this thought, precisely because he sat near the artificial light inside, the rich man missed the panorama of stars outside, a view gloriously manifest to the peasant. It was obvious to the peasant guy. In modern times, it seems, as science casts more light on the created world, its shadows further obscure the invisible world beyond. Don't be misled into thinking that the progress of humanity is all good. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said to religious leaders who are opposing Him, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me, Jesus said. If you are at all interested in the spiritual vitality that you are detecting here at Grace Redeemer Church, there is only one place to start to look at Jesus, the source of true light. Mark will show you the identity of this servant king. We hope you'll stick around. Finally, a word to those of you who are professing Christians here this morning. We have the exact same reasons for fear and anxiety as anyone else does in this fallen world. We Christians get cancer, we Christians break our legs ice skating. We Christians catch colds just like everyone else. There's no distinction. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The question is, do you daily remember and stand upon the promise, for example, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Christ Himself is our peace? Do you daily remember that? That peace, that shalom, that life as it's supposed to be in the, in, the, in, the, in the presence of the storm all around, whether it's coronavirus or the economy or relational breakdown, 
I know what my answer to that high bar is if I daily remember and stand upon that. And so we need Mark to give us greater focus on the one who alone brings shalom. Isaiah 26, 3 mentions the shalom. You will keep in shalom, shalom, translated perfect peace. That's the Hebrew way of emphasizing something. You will keep in shalom, shalom, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Perfect peace, highest shalom. It's like saying the chocolatiest chocolate cake I ever had. Tasting that kind of peace requires a steadfast mind. Here's the problem. Author Annie Dillard describes this experiment involving painted cardboard female butterflies drawn larger and more enticing than real ones. Whatever a sexy butterfly looks like, we don't know. But the male butterflies knew, and they kept mounting the cardboard butterflies over and over again. Quote, nearby, the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. It's a sad picture. It's actually the sad reality of pornography. C.S. Lewis in his story, Paralandra, writes about, quote, the sweet poison of the false infinite to describe how we humans do the same thing. Philip Yancey calls them substitute sacreds, which we chase to fill the vacuum of our disenchanted world follower of Jesus, we too need to become reacquainted with Christ Himself, to see the King's own face and to behold His beauty so that the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, so that substitute sacred these things we put in the place of God and give our attention and affections to will be shown to be poison and so that we will worship all the more the Son of Man who is both servant and king. Let's pray. Lord God, we worship you. We marvel at the person of Jesus who is a paradox in the eyes of the world, but who is light and life because you revealed him to be and he lived and died and rose in glorious fashion. Thank you for revealing these truths to us. Lead us more and more into his likeness and worship of him as king. Amen.